Hello, everyone. I am uh, back with Dr. Ankorth. Um, as you uh, recall, we had uh, started a discussion on blockchain um, a couple of um, months ago, and um, I thought it made sense for us to come back uh, to the podcast room, podcast room and, and, and discuss uh, three topics. Uh, the first one, obviously, uh, let's go back in terms of what we had discussed the last time. There's been some developments because blockchain is actually moving very fast. Uh, the second one, um, Ank is going to, you know, get a little bit technical uh, and explain uh, blockchain and databases. Is blockchain a database? We'll explore that a little bit. But then we'll get into a much broader topic that should interest lots of uh, financial uh, engineering, computer science, and finance uh, people uh, in terms of what are the implications, uh, the broader implication um, in the immediacy, but also in the future. So, Ank. Thank you. Happy to be back with you again and having a conversation. You know, you know, last time around, we focused very much on Libra, which was relatively new at that point and was certainly being positioned as becoming a um, global cryptocurrency with all kinds of good ascribed to it in terms of banking for the unbanked, etc., but also threats that were very much perceived by folks in the U.S. government. But um, a lot of those threats were in some ways misunderstood, that there was much more focus there on the particular organization that was front and center in terms of Libra, and that is Facebook. And what I'd like to do today is focus less on Libra itself or its particular group of companies involved in it, and focus more on the idea that if we do have a global cryptocurrency of some form or other, there's going to be lots of information that's collected as part of that, and look at the idea as how that all comes together, the impacts it can have, and then the power of data as we go forward. What has happened to Libras? As a result of all of the um, negativity in the congressional testimony and in other areas as well, foreign governments saying they might ban it, a number of companies that were initially in the Libra Association chose to leave. Part of that was that now with the negative publicity, they didn't want to be part of that, but that certainly wasn't a statement that they didn't believe in the original mission. They just believe that original mission will be um, implemented in some other yet-to-be-determined way. So that's one development there. But on the other hand, the technical developments in this space continue and continue at a fairly rapid pace. And those developments are happening not just within the Libra Association or the uh, Facebook subsidiary Calibra that's actually doing the technical work, but it's happening elsewhere as well. The publicity around Libra has alerted central bankers, national governments, to the reality that the technology exists to implement global cryptocurrency-based systems that can be um, supported by some kind of organization, be it a corporate consortium like Libra or a national government or a group of national governments. And so there's been development both on the technical level, looking at the implementation of this, but also on the policy level in recognizing the possibilities and conversations developing around it. Now, specifically, um, 
In the last podcast, we talked about China and the emerging Chinese initiative in this space. There's less known about that. The um, secrecy that the government is able to impose there limits what we can know, but we do know that there's quite a bit of activity, quite a bit of collaboration with the Chinese tech companies, and statements by leadership of the government there recognizing that this is an area that needs to be one of emphasis and one that they would like to have China dominate. It's important to understand that our stance in the U.S. towards Libra uh, needs to be uh, quite understood in the context of, well, you know, it's happening. Either we do it or they'll do it. So there's there's a bit of implication, but, but let's hold off to, to the end of the discussion. Or I might add, we yeah. all do it. There's no, there's no reason why it has to be just one. There could be a competition among nations, organizations, and whoever else wants to join in. So we have lots of um, – it, it's a moving target, so um, we won't be able to cover all the, all the happening of, of blockchain at this point. But uh, let, let's get into uh, actually blockchain. And Is it really a database? Yeah, so um, if you look at what's collected in a blockchain, you look at it from a finance standpoint, you think about transactions. You know, I give money to you, you give money to somebody else, and that's a record of those activities. If I look at that at a higher level, it's nothing more than a collection of information. And in that way, no different than the databases that have been in our lives for many, many decades. Banks have databases recording all the transactions on all their accounts. There are databases for all sorts of other things, whether it's you know airline reservations, university course registrations, etc. The main difference between what we typically think of as a database and blockchain is that blockchain is a different data organization that makes possible some very special properties. We talked about some of those the last time around, but um, to reiterate, there's the ability in a blockchain system to use cryptographic techniques to identify the submitter of a transaction in a way that is irrefutable. That is, if I submit a transaction, I can't claim later on, no, no, I didn't do it. There's proof that I actually did it. And the other thing that the cryptographic techniques allow us is to set up the blockchain such that once data is in the blockchain, it is immutable, and so it's there permanently. In a traditional database, we trust whatever organization runs that database to maintain the integrity of the database and assert the correctness of the data that's in there. And so we have the possibility here of moving away from trusting an organization that runs the database to a system where there may be no trust at all, that's the Bitcoin model, or where a group of organizers collectively assert that the database or blockchain is correct. And that whole transition between totally trusted to, at the other extreme, totally trustless is one of the big changes that blockchain brings into this. Immutability, irrefutability, and the trust model. That is key for a currency. I mean, this is what you would want a financial system to be based on, wouldn't you? Oh, absolutely. And um, 
Our system right now is based upon major banks, government central banks, organizations that are trusted and also regulated. And so we have a human process that is cast on top of all of the um, database technology to maintain all of that. There's the possibility with blockchain of taking some of that human process and moving it into code in a way that's going to be much more efficient, faster, but also creates a whole new set of issues. And, and that, that's where the excitement is here, that there's huge technological possibility. And for policymakers, it becomes a question of what is the right way to use that? The answer certainly isn't ignore it because there's vast potential for good that we don't want to just leave on the table, but also because this is a competitive space. Those organizations that choose to ignore it will be overtaken by those that choose to accept it. Does Congress actually understand the technology behind uh, blockchain? Uh, because if you listen to them during the summertime, they were quite egregious, uh, for example, when talking uh, about Libra. There are definitely folks in government who have a deep understanding of what's going on, and there are some who are most definitely clueless. I will avoid naming names. We won't go in that space here. I mean, there all, was a huge focus, really, uh, on um, on on f on on Facebook and Libra, and and I guess it was quite political. But at the end of the day, we need to embrace this. Yeah. I mean, uh, not only f uh, let's forget Congress for a minute, but but if you're going to be studying, if you're going to be going getting a job. Uh, on Wall Street, in banking, you need to understand the implication of what this is going to mean for the future. No, absolutely. But I think we do need to move this from looking at the particular face of a particular proposal with Libra to look instead at the idea here that um, at a fundamental level, data are everywhere. We have them on our phones, in our computers. They're in many forms. They're in traditional relational databases like Oracle, SQL Server, Mongo, etc. And they're also distributed under control of many, many different organizations. So what we're really talking about here, if we get away from the specifics of blockchain or traditional databases and recognize that it's all data, we're looking at a different way of organizing our information information about finance, information about the participants in financial transactions, and reorganizing the way we allocate control over those pieces of data. That's a major change. Another major change that's a consequence of this is that when separate organizations control data, they structure their data differently because they're making decisions separately. So data may be structured differently, the meaning of specific data items may be different from one database to another, but having a unified blockchain data model, we have the possibility of a standardization of the way we represent the structure of data, which facilitates access by a broader group of organizations and people. And so while we decentralize data, we are also creating more uniformity of structure. And these two technical transitions together help enable 
the various changes in governance that we started to talk about, and I'm sure we'll talk about more later on in this discussion. So you had immutability, which is a modifications to data that can be detected in the correct version identified by consensus, and then irrefutability, which means that uh, your submitted transactions are probably probably uh, submitted by the submitters, and no denial after that fact, meaning that it's a much stronger system. And it's interesting because I did a podcast not too long ago about Excel, where you know, if you're in Excel, for example, and you're making changes to it, uh, and you want to audit the changes, there's no way for you to know what has happened to the to the model. Uh, but if you code it, it's a lot easier to see what's going on. So I, it, I mean, yes, it, it's a blockchain uh, a topic, but it's a broader topic, as you mentioned. It's a data topic. Something is going on with the data, where now we want to be able to lock it, to understand it, and to make it more, uh, you know, irrefutable. So you're talking about um, the whole immutability of the blockchain. A consequence of that is that it is very, very important to look at how we decide when something can be added to the blockchain. Because once it's there, it's there. And that leads to the whole question of how we reach consensus to add something and who that we is. And there are you know, two very um, you know, different extremes here. And you know the um, the Bitcoin model, and let me preface this by saying that Bitcoin is not the way we can run a global financial system. But Bitcoin has a purely public model. Anybody can become a Bitcoin node and contribute to Bitcoin consensus. And because anybody can come in, the governance, the decision to add something to the blockchain has to be a very computationally expensive, monetarily costly process. And another extreme, you can have a blockchain that is permissioned. So that means that you have someone who is in charge of performing the addition of blocks to the chain. So while the blockchain can be publicly available, the decisions on what to add are very tightly controlled. Now, between an anything-goes public blockchain and a very tightly controlled permission blockchain, there's a, a full area in between of having organizations, consortia, that serve as the governing body that decide what will get added to the blockchain. And the broader and more open that is, the greater the public may feel confident in the operation of the blockchain, while, of course, the broader it is, also the more expensive consensus is. And that leads to another whole technical issue of how you do consensus. As many of you listening to this may know, the Bitcoin mining process is terribly energy-intensive. I think we talked about last time how it's about as energy-intensive as the nation of Ireland. We were talking about something pretty serious here. But when you have a permission blockchain and the governing consortium has the possibility of expelling misbehaving members, it then becomes possible to do consensus via a message-based protocol that's much less energy-intensive, it's much faster, and an area that is actually of very intense research within computer science at the moment. Some very nice methods for doing this, but almost certainly there'll be continued improvements over the next 
several years and decades. And so the decision between a very public system and a very private one is not just one of policy, but a technical one of cost. And so technology and policy have to come together here in finding a reasonable optimization between these. The lever approach was to have a very relatively modest size association. Started off as 28 members, it's fewer now, but the point is that that's a much smaller number than the general public. And that could then have a very efficient way of doing governance, an efficient way of adding things to the blockchain. If a blockchain is run by a national government, it could simply be run by the government, or perhaps that government allows consensus to be achieved over major banks in that nation, in that region, or wherever. And those are just some examples of the continuum of governance from something that's very centrally controlled to something that is totally open to the globe. We talked about Libra, which is something that's already happening. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on actually in China with their uh, national central bank cryptocurrency being developed. What are they doing and why is this important to us and what does it really mean for the dollar? Let's just assume for a moment that the um, Chinese cryptocurrency were already deployed. It isn't, but let's just assume that. It then becomes possible to do transactions using that currency to purchase anything from small everyday goods to major international purchases. Where does the data go about these activities? Well, it goes into that blockchain, and who's going to have access to it? While blockchains are designed that they can be public, they don't have to be. It might well be that only the government and certain privileged technological companies that are contributing to it have access. So that means that we could now have major international currency transfers that happen within the Chinese crypto blockchain that are visible to the Chinese government, but perhaps no other government. So let's think about what that means in terms of, for example, um, international financial sanctions. Right now, the U.S. government has huge power in that base. That power derives from the power of the dollar. Global transactions are conducted in dollars, and so the U.S. government, therefore, can block transactions, monitor transactions, and have a broad degree of control over global commerce. If there's an alternative way of conducting commerce that is not under the control or not even visible to the U.S. government, the power of the dollar diminishes and the power of these alternative mechanisms, such as a Chinese cryptocurrency, rises. It's not just the financial world here that's impacted. There's also information about transactions. This blockchain for cryptocurrency is a database. It means that now we have a protected collection of information, a very rich source of information, but the control isn't global. The control is whatever organization owns this. And that information can be used for many, many purposes. It could be used in terms of sanctions that I just discussed, but it can also be used in terms of studying low-level retail transactions, 
understanding the behavior of individuals, understanding commercial flows, feeding that to privileged companies to use for their marketing and strategic decisions. And so ultimately, the database that has the world's financial information is a database of huge power, and the emerging blockchain technology is creating the possibility of a change in who holds that power. This is pretty important. During Bretton Woods, we know uh, it was the dollar versus the pound sterling, and the, at that time, um, the dollar ended up being the uh, currency, currency of choice. What you're saying is that the dominance of the dollar could become in danger. And if a currency is in danger, you know, what are the ways you can do to protect it? Obviously, you could build your own, uh, you know, cryptocurrency the, the, the way um, China is doing. Although I'm not so sure if in this country we're being as proactive as China is in terms of building that, that uh, cryptocurrency. Where are we in the race, if you could use that word? Well, let me go back to um, your comment about Bretton Woods. That was a long time ago, but it's interesting to look at what was going on in the world that created that transition. The world was dominated by Britain and the British pound. At the end of World War II, the U.S. was the undisputed world power, and there was a transition from a pound-dominated world to a dollar-dominated world, and that transition occurred due to a transfer of military power. What's going on today is not a military war. It's a technological war. And that's creating the possibility of a transition in power. And I say possibility because this war, and I'd rather not call it a war, but in some sense it is, is just beginning. And while we know that there is some serious activity going on in China in this space, let's not forget that there's great technological expertise all around the world. The U.S. is still the world's dominant technological power. Within the EU, there's great technological capability. You look at the um, computing technology in France, Germany, and, um, well, the U.K. may be out of the EU in um, a month or so, but all in that space, then, there are many nations that have the possibility, in short order, of deploying very high-quality national cryptocurrencies if that's the decision of the national policymakers. And so we could have a future world in which there are many, many national cryptocurrencies competing in this space, a new competition for dominance that would be influenced in part by the incumbent currencies and their dominance, but how that current financial dominance and the emerging technological dominance of different countries interacts is a very interesting and open question. And that's why I think it's important for our listeners to really follow the story, follow the news, understand what it really means, because this is a... Okay, let's not use the word, the word war, but th there's a conflict going on. You know, the winner or the winners are going to change the way we conduct business, uh, in, especially in finance, and you mentioned retail. There's a lot of chips in the area, and I think it's important for everyone to really start to pay attention. Absolutely. I mean, I think a message to, uh, to all of us 
is um, the need to create an awareness for those who are in leadership to um, become informed. And become informed here is a two-sided thing. You need to understand enough about the technology to understand what it can do. And then with that knowledge, to understand enough about policy issues to decide what we should do and make sure that what you say we should do is something that we indeed can do. So that's the positive direction in policy. And then the flip side of that is to think about what decisions others in this space might make and what they could do. So there's a very important strategic game to be played here by leadership in the banking industry, in government, in um, the whole broad financial industry worldwide. And no, we don't have answers yet, but the possibilities are absolutely fascinating. And I hope lots of people listening to this will participate, think deeply, read broadly, and uh, have all this great technology be something for the greater good. Well, let me end this podcast with such uplifting comments from you, Hank. And again, thank you for uh, stopping by and uh, giving us your thoughts on the topic. Always a pleasure talking to you.